1: This is the Low Level Hell podcast episode 13. Tactics tactics tactics. I got your back, man. The forces on the ground You are clear to engage. First exercise. I need a placement with the flinger this part. to have him come around to cover trail. We made a five 40 of place. There was a quarter bit from our heading east going low level. Welcome to the Low Level Hell podcast program that explores the world of rotary and fixed-wing combat aviation through the exciting stories of the men and women who experienced it firsthand. Now, here's your host, U.S. Army helicopter pilot, Brian Harris. Hey guys, welcome back to episode 13 as we kick off International Month, though I guess I should probably just call it British Commonwealth Month or something like that based on our guests and where they're from. You know, the great thing about the low-level health community on Discord is the variety of individuals from all over the globe who are active and participate. And every one of our guests in April are actually members of the community. So I've reached out to them and asked a few of them to spend some time and share their experiences with us. So hopefully you guys will enjoy that. We do have a question from Harry Dale, who asks, was the Kiowas mass-mounted site, or MMS, used at all during the types of missions we were flying in Iraq or Afghanistan? Uh, against insurgents, or is it more designed for a conventional conflict featuring multiple vehicles, enemy troops in the open, et cetera? Uh, yeah, so it, by design, it really was intended for that, uh, you know, high intensity conventional peer near peer of threat. Right. So think about the time frame that the MMS was designed uh, for the Kiowa, you know, 1980s. You know, the threat was uh, the Russian Soviet horde crossing the Fulda Gap and, you know, all that good stuff. So really the idea was that the helicopters were going to be hiding behind some hills and some trees and popping up and unmasking that mass mounted site to observe targets. So in the, the the coin environment overseas, Iraq, Afghanistan, like you said, uh, we did use it. Um, I just for my own you know, experience, pretty much only at night, um, occasionally during the day, just kind of depending on the situation, but, but typically at night would, would definitely use it. Uh, cause you could go higher, uh, and just kind of observe, you know, say a route or something like that versus during the day, uh, you know, when you're trying to fly a little bit more dynamically zipping around, uh, it was very hard to keep the site, uh, where you wanted it. Um, so, so yeah, did, didn't use it too much overseas, unless you were going to shoot a missile, then you, you definitely needed it cause you needed the laser. So I appreciate that question. And if you guys have any other questions, send them to questions at the low level podcast.com. And, or you can check out our website, com, and uh, I've got a link down there you can send us questions. Alright, before we get started, I do want to say thanks again to all our Patreon supporters, and we do have some recent uh, new patrons, such as Billy Reed, Michael Nobreja, Julian Olivo, and Ted. Uh, thanks a lot for you guys, for your support to the show. Uh, we actually just did a, a little get-together for our DCS players, uh, our Air Mission Commanders and Wingmen tiers, uh, we got on our private server and did a little uh, team tactics, kind of did some shooting together in helicopters. It was a good time. I spent about two hours doing that. And we'll probably do uh, something like that again soon. So we're we'll to do that once a month, you know, kind of give back to the Patreon community and say thanks for, uh, for supporting the show. Now, of course, you can support the show in a number of ways. Patreon is one of them, but you can really just help me out at no cost to you by scrolling down and leaving a five star review and leaving a comment. You can also visit that website, www.thelowlevelhelppodcast.com. Scroll down to the bottom there. You can find links to all of our social media. Give us a follow there. So all these things, while they sound insignificant on their own, they actually do help the show grow by magic and algorithms and Aztec calendars. It's just a thing. So it does support the show, all those little things that you click and like. So I appreciate it. All right, well, enough nonsense from me. Let's go ahead and roll into this week's guest. He's joining us all the way from the great white north of Canada. All right, everybody, we're here with our next guest, Kelly Catton. He's a captain in the Royal Canadian Air Force. How are you doing, Kelly?
0: Not bad, Brian. Thanks for having me.
1: Sure. I'm glad you could join us here. We're going to do a little series on Sort of our international partners, if you will, Uh, and you're our first guest, so uh, thanks for for agreeing to take some time on a Sunday afternoon to talk to me. Um, Absolutely. So yeah, just tell us a little bit about yourself and and what you do.
0: Okay, Um, so I guess I'll start with my background. I was uh, very much the cliche kid, Uh, always wanted uh, to fly since as far back as I can remember, Uh, wanted to be a pilot, Um, going to air shows as a kid, uh, that was always the thing. Um, and, uh, I'm loath to say it now, but, uh, like most kids, uh, that age, I wanted to be a fighter pilot, uh, <laughs> yeah. obviously, uh, it didn't play out that way, but, uh, I'm happy, uh, happier for it. So, um, as I was going through, uh, through high school though, um, it quickly became apparent that, uh, my eyes were not, uh, not going to be good enough. So at the time the, uh, the air force required, uh, perfect 2020 vision to even apply to be a pilot. Uh, I don't know if it's the same way uh, in other countries still. Uh, it's not uh, for us anymore, but it was at the time. So uh, that dream was kind of kind of shot in about uh, grade 9, 10, kind of mid-high school uh, time frame. Uh, in the meantime, though, I had always been uh, a member of the Air Cadets. I think you guys have something equivalent to Junior ROTC. Is that uh, kind of a youth program?
1: Yeah, well, we, the same thing? we've got a couple. We've got the Civil Air Patrol, which is probably, probably a little bit closer, I think, to what you're maybe talking about. And then the uh, yeah, junior ROTC, yeah.
0: Yeah, so Air Cadets is a youth program from uh, from age 12 to 19 uh, that kind of uh, helps to recruit and, and, and um, teach leadership for uh, for kids of that age and stuff. So, uh, And, of course, the Air Cadets being very air-focused. Uh, but uh, I had also gotten into... Uh, the survival courses, so the land survival piece uh, that that goes along with that. And uh, as it became apparent that I wouldn't be able to fly for the Air Force, uh, I started thinking about um, doing some soldier stuff, and I had enjoyed being out in the fields uh, playing soldier uh, on these survival courses. So uh, when I was 17, uh, my last year of uh, of high school, I, uh, I went and saw a recruiter. Uh, and of course, first thing I asked was uh, was can I be a pilot? Uh, and the answer <laughs> to that was uh, was very quickly no. Uh, so, uh, but I I was kind of already prepared for that. So uh, I said, well, you know, I've been doing all this kind of army stuff, and you know, what about what do you got in the army that maybe I would be interested in? Uh, and uh, the recruiter, of course, they're always recruiting for infantry. Uh, mm-hmm. they're, they're, that, that's the one trade that's never closed. Yeah. Uh, so he said, well, well, I got a job for you. Uh, you like camping and you like walking and you like hiking. So I got a job for you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Cause that's all the infantry does.
0: <laughs> that's all the infantry does, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, so I signed up for that. Um, I signed up as an infantry officer. Uh, so the, uh, the entry plan that I went into was called, uh, ROTP or the regular officer training plan. Uh, and there's two entry, There's two ways to do the ROTP. Uh, the first is through the Royal Military College of Canada in uh, Kingston, Ontario. and that's our service academy. It's kind of like your West Point uh, or us Air Force Academy, but it's uh, it, it's tri-service it serves all of our uh, all of our services. Okay. The other option is uh, is through civilian university. so in in my last couple of years of high school, I hadn't really Applied myself maybe as much as I should have on my grades and uh, <laughs> didn't <laughs> like like I'm right, here, right there with you. <laughs> yeah, uh, so I didn't quite have the grades uh, to make the grade for for RMC, but uh, they told me they said go get uh, go get accepted to a civilian university and we'll we'll put you through it. So I said, okay, sounds like a good deal. Uh, so I ended up uh, going to the University of Lethbridge uh, for four years, and that was uh, that's a lot closer to home, which was nice. Uh, I didn't have to go across the country to RMC. Uh, and, uh, yeah, through the school year, I was uh, effectively a civilian. Um, not a civilian, but uh, very much living like one, uh, going to school, getting paid for, and, and with the tuition all covered. So it was a pretty, pretty good gig. Uh, summertime's uh, training uh for um, you know my future trade and, and basic training and everything so that uh, that all started in 2001 so spring 2001 is when I, uh, I met that recruiter uh, I went off summer 2001 to do my basic training uh, and then I was in my first year of university uh, in 2001 when of course September 11th happened so uh, my outlook uh, or my my outlook on my future changed significantly that day um, and uh, and obviously that would yeah, for <laughs> all of us pretty much, yeah. uh, and that uh, and that very much would would shape obviously how uh, how my career would go from there. So, uh, so four years of university uh, training in the summer times, uh, basic training in uh, Saint Jean, Quebec, uh, and then off to uh, future summers off to Gagetown, New Brunswick for uh, for infantry training, uh, and basically every summer taking it to the next level until uh, summer two thousand five. Uh, I. Had uh, graduated uh, university. I'd got my commission as a second lieutenant and I uh, went to do my final course in Gagetown, uh, which is the uh, the mechanized platoon commander course. Working out of the uh, the Lab 3, which is a little bit, it's like a mix between your striker, the uh, striker hull, with the turret off of a Marine Lab 2.5. Effectively, it's, uh, it's what it is.
1: Yeah, that is a very tight turret.
0: It is a very, yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, but with the striker hull, it makes for a little bit more uh, room, uh, in the, in the compartment itself and the uh, the lab two five, which is, yeah, those uh, things are really t-
1: small. I, I, I went out and trained with some Marines one time and they, they invited me out to the motor pool to, to jump in one of those things. And I, I'm six foot four and I could not get into the gunner seat, like literally wouldn't
0: fit. Oh, I could see that. I'm five nine. So oh, yeah, uh, I fit in it uh, yeah, a little bit more easily. Yeah. Uh, so finished training in, uh, in September of, uh, of 2005. Uh, and again, like I say, just, just commissioned as a second lieutenant. And uh, right around that time was when Canada was shifting uh, from working in the Kabul area of Afghanistan uh, down to Kandahar. So we were taking mm-hmm. over Kandahar province from the U.S. Army. Uh, I was posted to, uh, this is a mouthful, the 2nd Battalion, Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry mm. in uh, in Shiloh, Manitoba, uh, in uh, in September of 2005. And, and basically my first day there was told... Uh, Uh, I hope you're ready to go because we're going to Kandahar in January. Hmm. So, uh, deployed, uh, January, 2006 as a uh, platoon commander or as a platoon leader, as you guys call it, uh, to Kandahar province with the first Canadian battle group, the first full-size Canadian battle group, uh, in the Kandahar. Um, and, uh, and led a platoon for, uh, for six months uh, on that tour. Got, uh, got very interesting and, uh, this is an aviation-focused podcast. Maybe I'll save those uh, those stories for later. <laughs> but uh, it was uh, it was definitely an experience. Uh, I got promoted to lieutenant uh, during that tour as well. Okay, uh, I've always
1: loved the Canadian the, the whole battle group. Just it just sounds badass.
0: Do <laughs> you guys not use that terminology?
1: No, not at all. That, that, okay, <laughs> I wish we did. We uh, I mean, you'll hear other. One that went away that was really cool too was regimental combat team. We had we had that for a, a, a while, but uh, yeah, now it's brigade combat team. It just doesn't have the same ring to it. But battle um, group. I remember when we worked with Canadians when I was in Kandahar in 2009, and yeah, you just hear that on the radio. You're like yeah, I just want to just
0: bro, that sounds awesome. <laughs> so it's, and it's, it's one of our doctrinal terms, right? So sure. a battalion is a, uh, is an infantry, an infantry alone, uh, battalion. Yeah. Uh, and then as soon as you start tacking on enablers, you know, you give them a, a squadron of tanks, you know, a squadron of engineers, artillery, uh, then we start calling it a battle group. So it's combined arms team is really what, uh, what a battle group is for us. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So came home from that, uh, did the standard junior officer kind of staff jobs for, uh, for about a year and a half. And then my ticket came up again to deploy again. So uh, 2008, uh, deployed, it, deployed again with the Patricias uh, to Afghanistan, this time as an ops, uh, an ops guy in the ops center in the talk. So a little bit less exciting, um, certainly more work, but, uh, but less exciting. I uh, worked with, uh, actually, I'm going to put a plug in here as well. worked a lot with uh, with you guys on that one. Uh, specifically, it was, I don't know what unit they were from, but it was uh, Banshee Flight, uh, OH-58 Deltas. Uh, and and uh, I just want to put out a, a shout out to those guys because they were, they were amazing uh, and they were definitely uh, uh, helped us out a bunch of times. And this was and this what is, year? This was uh, spring, summer, 2008.
1: 2008. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think that that might have been the 10th mountain or 101st. Yeah, I can't remember. But okay. Yeah. Cool.
0: Yeah, um, and that was before it was. It was shortly after I, I redeployed from that tour that our, our own Canadian Griffins arrived in theater. Hmm. Um, so we uh, I hadn't had the opportunity to work with them uh, while deployed there. So uh, coming back from that deployment, they decided it was uh, it was time for me to go to a school and do some teaching. So I did, uh, By this point I'm a captain, uh, deployed, or sorry, uh, posted to uh, Wainwright, Alberta, which is where the uh, PPCLI battle school is, uh, where we teach uh, our soldiers, uh, the, the NCMs, or the enlisted uh, courses for infantry there, uh, and spent uh, three years uh, instructing there. Um, posted back in 2011 uh, to the battalion, again, back to Shiloh, uh, to, uh, to PPCLI. While I was in Wainwright, uh, the policy for uh, the vision for for applying to be pilot uh, had changed. Hmm. So they were, you know, struggling to to, to find enough people uh, that, that had 20/20 vision, uh, and they so they relaxed those requirements a little bit. Uh, you could be um, corrected your corrected vision up to a certain amount, uh, and and laser eye surgery was allowed at this point as well. Okay. So immediately I started thinking back to you know maybe I wanna maybe I wanna give that a shot maybe I wanna try uh, try switching over to go fly. Uh, so I started applying uh, in, in those years around 2009, 2010 was uh, first year I applied, uh, and uh, it took several years of applying. Uh, in that time, I got my private pilot license uh, through a civilian uh, company nearby there as well, and. Uh, yeah, applied. Uh, didn't get in the first couple of years, as I say. Uh, then I ended up getting laser eye surgery anyway, just for the convenience of it and uh, and to make it easier. And uh, by so, I got posted back to Shiloh in 2011. I uh, did a year there as the adjutant of the uh, of the battalion, so the uh, the senior captain in the unit there. Um, you know, was lined up for uh, company command in, in the next couple of years. So you know, things were looking good uh, until uh, until my CO got a message that said. Uh, I'd been accepted for pilot training. Hmm. So, okay, well, I guess uh, so much for that plan. Hmm. But uh, <laughs> so accepted 2012, uh, summer 2012. Uh, I went just down the road about an hour to uh, Portage La Prairie, Manitoba, which is where uh, we do our phase one. So having listened to your previous podcasts through your different services and how their their uh, training works, uh, our training is very, very similar to uh, your U.S. Navy uh, U.S. Air Force, U.S. Marine Corps-type training, where we all start fixed-wing, regardless of, uh, of, of what platform you want or what platform you're likely to get. Uh, we all start on fixed-wing. So Porters of Prairie uh, contracted out to, to a civilian company uh, flying the uh, Grobe G120, which is just a little, uh, little retractable, uh, aerobatic, side-by-side, uh, piston-powered airplane. Uh, and about 15 hours uh, on, on that airframe, just again, it's it's almost more selection and teaching you the very very basics of military flight training uh, than it is anything else. Uh, so that takes about two three months. Completed that, uh, off to Moose Jaw, uh, Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, which is uh, west by about eight hour drive. I think we measure distances in Canada in hours, by the way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, so Moose Jaw, flying the uh, what we call the uh, Harvard two. Uh, but it's the same as your guys uh, Texan into, yeah, so about a hundred hours on the uh, on the Harvard two there uh, and learning all the same stuff uh, that uh, you know your previous guests had talked about um, aerobatics, instrument flying uh, formation flying this is the standard kind of regimen there uh, at the end of which we do we do our selection and again, very similar to how you guys do it uh, in my case, we had a big party I honestly can't remember how it all went down because well I was probably a little bit inebriated so uh but I pretty much knew right away that I was going to get uh helicopters uh, i had been asking for helicopters by this point uh, my previous army experience some of the things I'd seen um in Afghanistan uh, as an infantry guy uh, watching your you know OH-58s and Apaches work had really got me thinking you know that's that's what I want to do uh, so uh so, uh, yeah, i asked ask for helicopters. Most people who ask for helicopters typically get it, uh, okay. and I did. So the options there, um, you can get, you know, you can go helicopter, you can go uh, multi-engine to fly the, uh, you know, Hercules, uh, Auroras, which is the same as your P-3, uh, Orion, mm-hmm. uh, C-17s, that kind of thing. Uh, you also have uh, fighters, you know, uh, obviously you can ask for fighters at that point as well, uh, and, then, uh, and then helicopters. There's just three options.
1: So what I mean I know you guys have f-18s what other fixed-wing fighters do you have anything else
0: that's it okay. so we uh, so if you go to the fighter stream and uh, you know I can only talk in generalities about sure. it but uh, if you go to the fighter stream you fly the the, the Texan or the, the Harvard 2 for a little bit longer mm-hmm. uh, and then you go on to the Hawk okay uh, which is the British aerospace hawk yeah uh, for for fighter lead-in uh, and then you go onto the hornet and that is uh, that's the multi-role fighter we have it's the only one we have uh believe they're uh they're highly highly upgraded a models uh, so effectively up to c model standards
1: yeah and then for the helicopters the choices are the griffin and then what else did you guys you guys have chinooks
0: yes so we have a lot of options for helicopters uh so when you when you first ask for helicopters you don't know which one you're going to get yet Hmm. uh, until you finish the helicopter uh phase uh but the options being the uh the Gryphon, and the Gryphon is used both for uh, what we call tac Hell or tactical helicopters, mm-hmm. uh, which is the support to the Army, uh, and also for search and rescue in, in certain uh, certain areas of Canada. Other options you have are the Chinook, which is also uh, used in the tac Hell role. Uh, the, when I went through, it was the Sea King. Now it's the, the new Cyclone for a maritime helicopter. Uh, and, uh, and the Cormorant, which is the uh, EH-101. Uh, and that's uh, another search and rescue platform that we operate uh, more in the uh, the, the, the backwaters a little bit more.
1: And so you guys are, but you're interchangeable in the sense that if you're a Griffin guy, you could be the the tactical role or be moved over to the search and rescue role, just a matter of assignment.
0: Uh, not really. Hmm. So we've kind of gone back and forth on that. Uh, there, there's times when we've had the search and rescue Griffin uh, people do the entire tactical, uh, role or the entire tactical training. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's other times where, uh, where we haven't, uh, right now, I think we're sitting more in, there's a little bit, there's not quite as much cross pollination as, as there used to be. So if you're mm-hmm. a star griffin type, you, you typically stay a star griffin type. And, you mm-hmm. know, if you're Tackel, you typically stay tac-al. hell. There is some crossover, but it's not as, as frequent as you might think, given that it's the exact same platform.
1: So then I assume that there's probably not a lot of crossover between airframes. And if you're a Griffin guy, you're, you're a Griffin guy. You're never going to probably fly a Chinook or something else.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So the, the Chinooks only recently came back online uh, a few years ago. Uh, lessons learned from Afghanistan. We actually retired them in the nineties. Uh, and then, uh, you know, Afghanistan came up and taught us that uh, that we need that capability back. So yeah. uh, we, we got them back in the mid, uh, mid two thousands, late two thousands. Um, and uh, it was actually more late 2000s, I guess. And uh, a lot of the Griffin types then left and, and moved over to fly the Chinook because uh, a lot of them had had previous Chinook uh, time on the, uh, when we had them previously in the 90s, as well as uh, just some guys who had never flown the Chinook moved over there. And that was about it. Uh, we do have the occasional one every few years that goes over to the Chinook side, but it's not, not that frequent.
1: So I want to go back real quick, and then we'll we'll jump back forward to the Griffin. Uh, was that fairly? I mean, you you basically left the army for the air force, right? So I mean, was that pretty rare to to do that, or was that a, a fairly standard thing that, that happened?
0: You know, it's uh, it's gotten more common. So my course on phase one, uh, there were three of us out of eight who were uh, inter inter service transfers. Mm-hmm. Uh, some guys uh, from the Air Force. One was a uh, a nurse, actually, <laughs> um, or uh, sorry, yeah, I think he was a nurse, uh, and he he transferred over to be pilot. Uh, but he'd also been Army previous to that, so it, it is more frequent than you'd think, yeah. and it's something that we're actually um, trying to encourage more uh, in Tac hell right now, is to bring more guys over from the Army just because of the uh, the experience and the qualifications mm. that uh, that it brings along.
1: Okay, um, so. Pe- People may not know much about the Griffin. Uh, just tell us a little bit about the aircraft.
0: All right. So the uh, the Griffin, uh, we purchased it in the mid '90s uh, to replace three airframes. Actually, we replaced the uh, the original Kiowa uh, that we had, uh, the UH-1H, or the Twin Huey, and the uh, and the Chinook. It's a uh, it's based on the Bell 412, which uh, if you're not familiar, so the UH-1 November was the Twin Huey. Uh, was civilianized, became the uh, the Bell two twelve. Right, mm. uh, the Bell two twelve was then upgraded uh, into a Bell four twelve, which uh, really the biggest difference is a uh, four bladed uh, composite uh, rotor system, um, and uh, and an AFCS system as well. Uh, and then the Bell four twelve was then painted green and turned into the Griffin. <laughs> so we are, if, if if you think of a spectrum between the Twin Huey and the new Yankee model Huey were probably were a lot closer to the Twin Huey than we are to the Yankee, uh, but uh, very much the same role as as the Yankee.
1: So, what kind of uh, systems do you have on board? What, what kind of radios you work in? Do you have any Fleer or anything like that?
0: Yeah. So the uh, so the Griffin, um, it's really and I heard your marine uh, your marine pilot say this as well. It's exactly the same for us. It's the the jack of all trades, master and none. We we use it for. Uh, just about everything you could use a green painted helicopter for, uh, so it's obviously uh, used in the utility role. Um, inserts, aerosols, things like that. Um, very, very commonly used for that. Uh, we can also mount, uh, so we can mount the what we call the C six, which is uh, the M two forty, as you guys know it, mm-hmm. uh, for uh, for the slick role, basically for inserts. We also have the ability when we're using it in an armed Overwatch uh, to mount the Dillon, the M M uh, two M one thirty four uh and the uh and the Gal 2150 cal. So we have uh, quite a bit of firepower uh door mounted that we can uh we can strap to that aircraft. Uh especially that 50 cal it's got uh got a pretty good punch and then the Dillon obviously extremely high rate of fire. What we do not have unfortunately uh in my opinion anyway is uh is any kind of forward firing rockets. Uh so that's one capability we don't have. Uh so that's uh, armed Overwatch. We have that ability. Uh, we have a FLIR that can be mounted as well. It's the uh, the MX15 that mounts uh, on the arm on the left hand side of the aircraft, uh, and that's a, a very very capable uh, platform as well for uh, reconnaissance and uh, and Overwatch and things like that. Okay. Um, on top of that, you know your standard uh, standard Ace Dues kit that uh, that we all fly with these days, uh, and uh, yeah, that's that's pretty much pretty much it. All
1: right, so you got into Griffins. That I mean, is that what you wanted? Is that what was your, your first pick? Or
0: yeah, it was my first pick throughout. So uh, when I finished the uh, the helicopter training, uh, I asked for uh, for Griffins and for Edmonton uh, simply because it made sense with my background.
1: Sure. And how long of training is that?
0: So the uh, post Moose Jaw uh, off the Portage, and it was eight months of uh, of helicopter training, uh, starting off in the Jet Ranger. Like most do, and then uh, off into it was actually effectively back back into the Griffin for the uh, for the last couple months. Uh, but it's a civilianized Griffin, uh, so it's basically a Bell four twelve. But uh, and then uh, so after eight out, after eight um, months of that, arriving at uh, at squadron posted, uh, but not not yet qualified, right? Because uh, much like you guys, um, you know, still not uh, not tactically qualified yet, just basically right. qualified as utility guys. So. Another three months in Gagetown, New Brunswick. After that, to uh, to do the actual uh, tactical uh, employment of the aircraft.
1: All right. So showing up at your first unit, um, I mean, you're already a, a more senior rank guy than I than I imagine most of the pilots showing up at a new unit are, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. So it was it was both a blessing and a curse. <laughs> uh, so I showed up with uh, with Army Army Staff College qualified. Uh, which which is something that we we usually only get one or two spots in, in our unit uh, a year for that course so it's a wow. it's of a, a course we do try to get our aviators on uh, and, and, but it's hard to get so showing up with that qualification uh, was was a big help to me because it allowed me to uh, to, to really start moving up fairly quickly but also meant that uh, I spent a lot of time uh, doing uh, some of the, the the heavier heavier hitting desk jobs uh, very early in my career nice. uh, so just by virtue of having that qualification. So, uh, but again, it wasn't all bad. It, uh, it also helped me to, uh, to, to advance in, in seniority fairly quickly.
1: Sure. How about for the flying as far as, you know, you're, you're kind of behind your peers in, in flight experience. How did that play out?
0: Yeah. Um, so I flew about as much, maybe a little bit less as, uh, as most of my peers, but, uh, the understanding of how the army works, uh, really, actually, allowed me to to work my way through the upgrade progression um, quicker than so right. with with less hours than than would be average. Sure. Uh, so I upgraded to uh, to aircraft captain, or and then flight lead uh, fairly quickly and fairly early in my career, despite uh, having all the uh, the extra secondary duties on top of that.
1: So do you guys have like readiness levels like we do, where you know you show up and you're new guy and you got to fly with instructor pilots, and then you you upgrade to, to mission ready, or how does that work?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So we have what we call categories. Uh, so when you first show up to the squadron, you, uh, you don't have a category until you've gone to gauge town for that, uh, that course, oh, okay. but you can be converted to by a local instructor pilot into a utility first officer, uh, which is just like it sounds. You can do utility tasks, oh, uh, nothing tactical. Okay. Interesting. Once you're, once you finish gauge town, you're a, uh, you're a tactical first officer. Um, so you can do tactical stuff, uh, and with a little bit more training, uh, attack ops, uh, things like that you become a combat ready first officer uh which means now you can deploy uh and then uh then we have the tactical aircraft captain, which is the next step up from that so now you can be tactically you know an aircraft captain of one aircraft uh, and then uh, at the end of that is your flight lead so you can be employed as a as a flight leader of, of two ship or greater
1: okay so you show up at the unit and you can be checked off to just do utility type stuff but you actually have to go to a separate school to be uh, a gun guy, essentially. That's correct. Yeah. Okay.
0: Interesting. All right.
1: Um. Okay. Well. So, tell us. You know. When did you deploy as a as a Griffin guy?
0: Yeah. So 2017. Um. Just as uh as the uh, the fight against Daesh was really kind of um, starting to, get, to gain steam again. Uh. We deployed uh, a detachment up to Herbal mm-hmm. to support in uh, in northern Iraq. There. Uh. The fight against Daesh in uh, in Mosul. So that was when the uh the big fight for Mosul was going on. Uh so operated out of uh out of herbal. That was only that was a quick tour. That was only a three month tour for me. Mm. Uh but uh spent three months there uh supporting the uh, the ground forces against Daesh and very, very rewarding uh tour in my opinion. Uh and I uh, felt like we did a lot of good on that one. So
1: Yeah, that's a good time. We uh a friend of mine, his uh his unit was there, um four six Cav, the Apache. Unit, I think they were up there around the same time.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, we saw them down the rap from us. Yeah. Uh, I don't uh, don't think we ever really cross pollinated with them. Uh, at least on my tour, I think I was talking to him a little while ago on your Discord, and uh, uh, he had uh, met some of the Canadians on a previous tour to mine, but we never had the chance.
1: Okay, yeah, um, I was in Erbil too. That's a, I mean, that is a nice place compared to the rest of iraq
0: <laughs> it, it was it was wonderful uh, and the canadian camp there was uh was really a nice a nice spot to base out of yeah uh, that was that was a good tour
1: yeah i, I remember stepping off the c17 i'd been to missoul you know 2006 and uh and come stepping off the c17 or whatever i was on uh into erbil and i walked off the ramp and i saw those skyscrapers and i was like where where are we? Like this can't be Iraq, there's no such place in Iraq that has buildings like that, and you know and there' was another skyscraper being built at the same time like it was it was it blew me away, very, yeah, and we had a beautiful. great view
0: right from right from where we parked our aircraft and where our yeah. camp was uh you could you could actually see the fence line um and then you could see right into downtown herbal, so you know at night yeah. it was all lit up, and- oh
1: yeah, there was that one building that would just lie I swear it's a casino I mean it was the only thing that could make sense to me it reminded me of Vegas it would light up and down Were you get you guys were down um Trying to remember directions. Was that like on the West side or uh, East uh, side of the
0: airfield South side? We were on the South side.
1: Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a nice little base. There was all kind of interesting things going on there. Um,
0: yeah, it was good. Good food too.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There was a lot of good options there and they would, I think they would like deliver pizzas to the front gate or something too. Like it was really, it was a really strange deployment.
0: Yeah. They had the, the Germans had that little restaurant there. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, Unfortunately, so on my tour, it was we were only there for a couple of weeks, and a bunch of guys got sick from one of the coffee mm. shops, myself included. Uh, and the PMED, the preventative med- medicine folks, uh, shut us down. Said, "Nope, you're not allowed to go to any of the local restaurants." Oh yeah. So I only had about two weeks where we were actually able to do that, and then uh, unfortunately we. <laughs>
1: yeah we could go to all the restaurants but there was a little massage parlor that we weren't allowed to go to for for other Same. reasons so
0: <laughs> yeah right right by the small defect there right? yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: it was a little sign but but no um okay so tell us a little bit about uh Missoul. what was that like for you
0: so we did uh it was mostly a utility role in that one um so some of our uh our folks that were uh Supporting the fight against Daesh, working with the Kurds, uh, we were uh, basically tactical transport for them, keep them off the roads, uh, and uh, largely keep them safe from uh, from the threats uh, on the ground. Uh, and that was pretty much it. So it was it was fairly routine, and well, it's never routine when you're in a combat zone, but uh, you know, relatively uh, uh, routine flying uh, to the same kind of places back and forth. Yeah. Uh, it, it was good flying. It was fun. Uh, we got a lot of low level stuff. We were out in the countryside a lot, so. Uh, we got to get uh, get nice and low, which is where we like to fly.
1: Yeah, well, that's funny that you say that because when I think of Griffins, I think of flying very low. Um, my experience with you guys was in uh, in Kandahar, two thousand nine, and uh, I remember one night. This is when I was still a Kiowa guy, and one night we were we were flying, and at night we would we would come up at an altitude, and then during the day we we were typically pretty low. But I remember seeing these lights out on the horizon or or, you know something and i mean they were really low and uh you know it was like an infrared light a pink light or something but uh you could just tell you could see the source and you could see it hitting the ground and you know there was not a lot of distance between the two and uh (laughs) you know we're like what the hell is that and then as we got closer and they got closer to us we figured out it was griffins but man i was like man those guys like to fly low it was it was impressive (laughs) as kiowa guys when we say man those guys like to fly low that's pretty low
0: yeah we do it is uh it's definitely so. My my second tour there in uh, in Baghdad, just my most recent one in, in Taji, uh, we were the only guys flying low. We you were, were uh, we were down on the deck uh, as often as we could, uh, except over the city uh, towers and wires and things. But yeah. anytime we were out of the city, we were we were right on the deck.
1: Now, I mean, is that a why I guess I don't know how to ask that question what is the the driving purpose is it because of the door guns is it is it a, a systems is it just a mentality like how does that how's that it? out uh, a-
0: it's it's threat dependent yeah. uh, so without getting too much into uh, you know tactics and things sure. like that um, but it's uh, it's just about exposure to threats and, and what do we feel we're most yeah. vulnerable to um, versus other threats and, and positioning ourselves to to, to not be uh, as vulnerable to those threats
1: right because it's a trade-off one to the other The the lower you are the more susceptible to small arms but obviously less the, the bigger systems and then you know that the that's a trade-off as you as you go higher um but yeah okay interesting
0: yeah we train like uh so here in canada we train like we do everything low level like it's 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 just basically natural for us uh i think i can count on maybe one hand the number of times i've flown above a thousand feet uh, when i wasn't under ifr yeah uh, so it's it's just how we, we do everything low.
1: Yeah. Are you guys IFR capable or is it an emergency procedure? Like how does that work?
0: We are IFR capable. Yeah. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's an older, uh, it's an older platform. Uh, it is getting an upgrade that's starting this year. That's going to give us full, uh, full glass panel, RNAV capabilities, things like that. But uh, right now we're all, uh, we're all steam gauge. So it's very steam gauge IFR uh, NDP approaches, If we get to do a VOR approach, we're pumped. (laughs)
1: It's
0: (laughs) it's a lot of NDBS right now um, until our RNAV comes online.
1: Okay, and but you guys have full GPS. I mean, how does that? Is it integrated on something external to the aircraft? Like how does that work?
0: Uh, So we have an integrated GPS. Uh, It's a tactical system. Uh, It's not. uh, It's not IFR certified. Right. uh, But it is used for for tactical purposes. Okay. And a Doppler as well, like like a lot of helicopters have.
1: Okay and you guys don't have any sort of digital comms or linkage with with other aircraft or with anything on the ground.
0: So we have uh, we have three radios. Uh two of them are are multi-spectrum so everything from uh you know army band FM up to uh, UHF. Uh, and one of them is UHF only. Uh they are crypto capable, uh they're half-quick capable. Uh you know all the, all the standard stuff but uh no Link 16, no data links, no nothing like that. Very very uh okay very analog
1: <laughs> so no moving maps or anything you're, you're, you're doing everything all analog
0: we're doing everything off paper maps uh, navigating watch map ground uh, that's that's our thats that's how we do it
1: okay all right so your last deployment was fairly recent you said
0: yeah so December 2019 deployed to uh, Taji uh, just north of Baghdad there yeah. uh, in support of uh, NATO mission Iraq so that was a a uh, uh, the NATO mission to train, uh, the Iraqi security forces, uh, and, and, uh, make them, you know, or assist them in becoming self-sustaining.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, so, uh, again, a very similar role to what we did in, in, uh, in herbal. So a, a tactical transport type role, uh, and, uh, moving around the, uh, the instructors, uh, and the advisors, uh, from, from point A to point B, keeping them off the roads, things like that.
1: Okay. Well, I hope the tower guy, uh, Taji, got better than, than when I was there last time. He was... Nope. Okay. <laughs> I figured probably not. <laughs> he was nah. giving us the wrong thing and then adamant that he was correct when we would, you know, subtly correct him. Like, oh, you know, he, he gave us a, a right base when we were coming in for a left base. And, you know, we told him, oh, Roger, a left base. Said, no, no, no. Right base. Uh Okay. We're going to land.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, I got one or two of those. Uh, and the one that really sticks in my mind was, uh, you know, you're clear land runway three, four, a beam Bravo or something like that. Yeah. And I look down at the runway, I go, so you want me to just go around the Herc that's on the runway right now? That's yeah. a beam Bravo or, yeah? <laughs> you know, so I just, I told the Herc guy on the radio, I'm like, don't worry, I'll just land on the grass beside you. <laughs>
1: Yeah, you just you kind of find ATC in Iraq as more of a suggestion than really something to follow. You know, you're just, okay, he roughly wants me to land. I'm gonna go ahead and land where it's safe.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And Baghdad International, we went in in out of uh, there quite a bit as well, and uh, and same thing. And sometimes we would just going rock it in uh, right on the deck, and you know, just they're telling us to do something. We're like, no, that doesn't make sense, both tactically and airmanship wise. So we're not doing that.
1: Yeah. Well, I bet you missed Erbil when you were in Taji because that, thats was a very different living condition.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't quite as, uh, it was certainly more comfortable than a lot of, uh, where I lived in Afghanistan, but sure. uh, it definitely wasn't, uh, wasn't herbal comfortable.
1: Yeah. And yeah, then uh, much, much posher and the weather was much better. It was like 20 degrees cooler, I think.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We were there, uh, through the winter in in Baghdad so it didn't get it uh, didn't mm. get too hot for us but we were there through the uh through uh the whole tensions with Iran when everything kind of ramped up in mm. in January there the embassy burning uh the ballistic missiles from Iran all that kind of stuff we were we were in in theater for all that so it did kind of we were kind of stuck in the middle on that and miserable a bit i guess
1: yeah it gets a little sporty at that time um, so are all your deployments generally that short or is it just just kind of the way it was?
0: So Taji was a six month deployment okay. uh, rather than a three okay and six months is pretty typical for us. Uh, herbal we were trying to rotate as many people as we could through to to just to give them operational experience so yeah. we we shortened them to three uh, but Taji was uh, was a six monther
1: okay, so let's talk about like your organizational structure like how many Aircraft. How many pilots are are in a unit? Like, how does that work out in the uh, helicopter side?
0: Yeah. So, um, all of our tactical helicopters fall under uh, what we call One Wing. So, One Wing is uh, is Canada's tactical helicopter wing, uh, and uh, it's based in Kingston, Ontario. Uh, And we have uh, squadrons kind of situated or populated around the country. So, I'm at Four Weight Squadron in Edmonton, uh, Edmonton, Alberta. And that's Western, very, very Western Canada, for those who aren't, uh, who aren't familiar. Uh, we have uh, several squadrons in the Ontario area. So 430 is our uh, sister squadron in, uh, in Balcartier, Quebec, and they're organized pretty much exactly the same as us. Uh, we have a couple squadrons in Petawawa. That would be the Chinook squadron 450, as well as uh, 427, our special operations uh, aviation squadron, also flying the Griffin uh and then we have a maintenance squadron in in uh borden that's 400 squadron uh, they do all of our heavy maintenance and things like that and then our school our schoolhouse uh, 403 squadron in, in Gagetown. so sorry go ahead
1: no i was just gonna say i i, I should have studied a map of canada because <laughs> there's one place that i don't know any like i mean just uh, beyond the very basics in canada when i talk to canadians and they name all these towns and i'm like man that's a, that's a big name. I should know probably where that is, but yeah.
0: Yeah, so okay. So um, <laughs> Edmonton, which is in Alberta, is uh, we're just north of North Dakota. Okay. Or Montana. Sorry, Montana. Uh, so we're just north of Montana, so we're pretty far west. Mm. Uh, and we're about, uh, I don't know, 500 miles north of the border uh, from there. Okay. Uh, if you know where Calgary is, we're just north of that. Uh, and then the other squadrons in Ontario. There, most of them are in southern Ontario, so kind of just north of Detroit type area, where it's like Toronto kind of area. Okay, just in generalities.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm showing my American ignorance because you know I I think most of us when we picture Canada, you know, we picture this huge thing of land that people live on the right side and the left side, and like no one's in the middle. Like that's how we sort of picture it, you know. But I'm sure that's so not it's, the case.
0: It's kinda correct. Uh, okay. except we all live in the south. Mm-hmm, so, sure. you know, you've got uh you've got Vancouver on the far west coast is one of our largest cities. Uh but then basically I think it's something I don't know the exact statistics, so don't quote me on it. Something like ninety five percent of our of our population mm. is within a hundred miles of the US border.
1: Oh, okay. So Interesting. we kinda all live
0: in a in a, a strip along the southern southern yeah. part of the country.
1: Huh. Yeah, okay. Interesting. Um, you mentioned a uh, special operations aviation that flies Griffins. I, I mean, I've worked with your ground special ops guys, um, but I, I didn't realize that you guys had a sort of aviation equivalent.
0: Yeah, we do. Uh, I honestly don't know much about them. Sure. Uh, not much I can really, uh, I can really say about them other than where they're located and kind of what yeah. they do, but, uh, you know, they fly the same same aircraft as us and just employ, you know, different tactics, I think.
1: Sure. Yeah. And probably just more dedicated on, on who they work with.
0: Um, yeah, exactly. Okay.
1: Well, tell us a cool story. Tell us something exciting or funny or stupid that happened.
0: All right. So, uh, I actually got permission to tell this story it's a second-hand uh secondhand story uh and it ties well into uh i was just talking about how all of our population lives you know in, in the south of the country so as uh you know as most people know canada's massive it's the second largest country in the world by uh by uh land mm. area right well most of that is is the north uh and uh you know, we have, we have a vast, vast Arctic uh, area up north that, uh, that we're still responsible to defend, right? It's, uh, mm-hmm. it's, still, it's Canadian sovereign territory uh, and it doesn't matter that we all live and, and, and work out of the south. We need to be able to operate up there. Mm-hmm. So uh, some years back, a friend of mine uh, was doing a, uh, a transit uh, up north uh, and he's, he, he's really, really far north. Like he's, he was way up there and uh, you know, we're talking 300 miles between anything resembling civilization, uh, no weather reporting whatsoever, uh, just just very 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 desolate. So they're flying along and, uh, and they keep getting pushed down by weather and the weather's getting bad on them and, and you know they're starting to run out of options so, they, uh, so they, they basically just land the aircraft and say we're going to land and we're going to wait out the weather, you know, wait till the weather gets better. Hmm. So you know they're waiting a while and it's starting to, to to get late in the day and they say well we're just gonna we're gonna pitch the tents like it's not it's not getting better till the morning so they pitch the tents and, and they uh and they shower it off for the night well, they wake up in the morning and they're packing up their tents and, and getting ready to go and they look off in the distance and there's this white something or other coming towards them mm-hmm. say is that a polar bear yeah yeah that's a polar bear so they go, okay so they start packing up a little faster well meanwhile this polar bear keeps keeps coming towards them. To the point where it's it's getting close enough now that they're concerned. Yeah. So they all uh, they all scramble up on top of the aircraft. So now there's four four crew members uh, hiding out on the top of this aircraft while this polar bear is circling the aircraft, kind of doing the old like swatting with his paw, wow. like "What are you doing on my territory?" kind of thing. And, yeah. Um, and, they, and they they have a shotgun, but polar bears are endangered. They don't want to you know kill it if they don't have to, right? Yeah. It's not it's not hurting them yet, but it's it's. <laughs> It's kind of it's in their way, right? So uh, meanwhile, it's uh, my buddy's trying to trying to reach down onto the front seat of the aircraft uh, from the roof where he's got his survival vest. He wants to get his flares and try to get his flares and scare it away, uh, and uh, and uh, he wasn't able to get at it. So uh, just that, that image of a uh, four crew members hiding out on, on the roof of an aircraft with a polar bear <laughs> kind of stalking them. It's, it's a very Canadian image, right? Yeah,
1: that's that's Canada in a nutshell. <laughs>
0: Yeah, exactly. So uh, it ended up working out well. Uh, the polar bear didn't cause any damage to the aircraft. It got bored uh, and, uh, and eventually left them alone and they were able to carry on. But uh, yeah, it's a very, well, I would tell that one. It's a very good Canadian story.
1: I mean, we laugh, but there, I'm assuming there's a reason that they were flying around with a shotgun and tents is because this was not out of the norm as far as having to, to be in the middle of nowhere and having to deal with wildlife.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So anytime we go up north, we do uh, we do go prepared for for that. Uh, we carry. I mean, this this time of year, especially, we just spent a, a week doing flying in minus forty five temperatures, oh. uh, and that was here in Edmonton. That wasn't even uh, you know up north uh, and minus forty five. I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit, but I'm talking Celsius, right?
1: Yeah, that's just too cold. So
0: yeah, so we have hundreds of like hundreds of pounds of our gross weight in the aircraft goes towards uh, winter survival gear when uh, when we're operating in those conditions for sure
1: Golly. Uh, how does i mean is the griffin how does that work for the crew do you guys have a pretty decent heating system or does it just suck
0: uh the heating system's okay uh i mean we we operate that aircraft at, at all extremes right so anything from like i say minus 45 up to you know plus 50 in in, in the sandbox and everything in between uh at uh in the, in the cold we typically like You'll you'll need Herman Nelsons. You'll need uh, you know some kind of, of way of preheating the aircraft. Uh, I was starting an aircraft uh, a few weeks ago in on an exercise in Shiloh, uh, and the Herman Nelsons had quit overnight. It was so cold that even the Herman Nelsons wouldn't keep running. Wow. So uh, you know what a Herman Nelson is? Is that a
1: familiar? I I've heard the name. I don't know enough about it.
0: It's just a jet-fired uh, diesel heater, basically, okay. that uh, blows a lot of heat. Yeah. So uh, they quit overnight, uh, and I we hit the starter, uh, and the N1 just stagnated. It mm. wouldn't, wouldn't rise, um, and I was told that there were flames shooting at the back of the aircraft. <laughs> uh, you know, everything stayed within limits, so we were fine, but uh, what had happened, I think, was the oil was so thick from the cold that yeah. the, the engine just wouldn't turn over, mm. and it just it just hung on the starter.
1: Yeah, that's rough. I mean, aircraft don't like to be cold, so no, to people, <laughs> right? Yeah, and then yeah, further compounded by uh, people being cold. Yeah, that sounds extreme. That, I mean, you guys are operating in some pretty wild, wild stuff. but uh Oh, that's interesting. Well, I, I you know, I appreciate the giving us kind of a, a view into the, the Canadian lifestyle there and, uh, and and the aviation side of things because I have worked around you, you guys, uh, a couple times in the past. I've just never never uh, been able to deep dive into anything and and i, I think the griffin is just an interesting aircraft just the way that it's employed because it's not you know it's nothing special on the books i mean it, it's essentially a huey like you said you know just kind of a, a tricked out huey i guess you could say but uh uh certainly used in a very interesting way and uh what, what do you guys normally carry two crew member in the back or just one
0: uh, no, normally two, so we'll have yeah. the uh, the two pilots up front, uh, a flight engineer, or as you guys would call them, crew chief, yeah. uh, on on the right side, and a door gunner, usually a combat arms uh, infantry or or armored guy on the left side. But yeah, we certainly do. Uh, we we squeeze that Griffin for everything. Uh, for everything, you know, we don't have that dedicated attack uh, platform that a lot of other countries have, so we've uh, we've adopted the Griffin, and it it does surprisingly well in that role. Uh, yeah. We can we can do quite a bit with it.
1: Yeah, you guys do. I mean, it's in a, honestly, is a testament to the pilots. You know, it's not the aircraft, but uh, but you guys being able to being able to squeeze all that out. So that's oh, pretty cool. And uh, yeah, I appreciate you uh, spending some time and telling us all about it.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you.
1: Well, I can say I've been in some hairy situations in combat. and I've had some close calls, but I've never had a bear take a swipe at me. So that's certainly a new one did have a kid uh, in iraq try to kick my aircraft with a soccer ball when i flew overhead but yeah it's not really in the same league well i hope you guys enjoyed the episode a reminder that the views expressed do not represent the department of defense the canadian government or any private businesses we'll see you guys again soon with more of international month stay healthy and fly safe